Good morning. My name is Brandon. I am the uh, pastor of what we call Preaching and Vision here at Sojourn Heights. And as, uh, as he said, we're in a series on Malachi that we've titled The Danger of Mission Drift. And Malachi is a book that's in the Old Testament. The Old Testament are uh, the scriptures, the part of the Bible that comes uh, before Jesus. And it's really a story about the nation of Israel. Uh, and so we're we're going to keep going today with Malachi 2 and get started. This weekend I read a, uh, an article, and by weekend I mean uh, this week, that, that was a lie. So this week I read an article, um, Psychology Today, taking a scientific look at story. Uh, and here's, uh, here's what they said, fascinating stuff. They said, while we feel like unified creatures, that is not actually the experience of our brains. There is no central command post in the brain, says neuroscientist Michael Gazinaga. Rather, there are millions of local processors to process experience. And so here's our question. How, how is it then that these millions of processors function as a unified whole and that we experience ourselves that way? So here's, here's what they're saying so far. And I'm not saying it. I know nothing about the brain and medicine and science. I am simply quoting people who went to college for this. They're saying your, your brain doesn't have one computer. It's got millions of little computers that all work together as one. And this, they're saying, uh, is this question of how does it happen? How do millions of little computers in our brain function together as one? And here's their answer. Because we tell ourselves stories. Our brains try to fit everything into a coherent story. Story, it turns out, Stories, it turns out, are not optional. They are essential. And so their point, what they're trying to say, uh, is medically speaking, scientifically speaking, our bodies, our brains are hardwired for story. They are hardwired for story. And the way that uh, a friend of mine, Russell Minnick, would say, he would say it like this, that all of us in this room, every one of us, I do and you do, we all have a dominant governing story about life. And that dominant story about life determines the personal narrative of your life. So everyone in this room has a dominant story, a coherent story that life fits in. And what that story is determines the personal narrative of your life. The way that Russell says it is everyone has a script. Everyone's got a script that we operate from. And that script determines how we live our life our governing story determines our personal narrative. And our text today is going to say this. This is what it's going to say to you and it's going to say to me. The story you believe matters. The story you believe matters. And so last week we jumped into Malachi 1 and we started to see the story of Israel and we saw the story of Israel going like this. Israel was this nation that at one point ended up in captivity uh, in Babylon uh, and they were a people in exile, a people with no home and no temple. And then God released them, sent them back out of exile to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to go and establish a home again, a home where they could come into the presence of God. But now the temple is built. Now it's been about 100 years since then. About 100 years have passed from the release from exile to rebuilding the temple, and we just have begun to drift as a nation, we have just begun to drift as a people. We've lost sight of our why, our why that God sent us back. 
And Malachi is going to dive in and say that the root of their drifting was a story, a story that they began to believe as a nation. And Malachi 2 is going to get right to the heart of it. So let's go. Verse 1. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, he says, here's the root issue for Israel. The, the root issue for Israel is they would listen with their ears, but they would not hear with their hearts. Now, let, let me tell you what that means. That means they would listen, but they would not listen. They, they would listen kind of, but not, not really. Uh, and you know who does this incredibly well? Children, mine in particular. Children do this incredibly well. You know who else does this? Roommates. But that's probably uh, another sermon for another day. And here's the reason that we do this. Here's the reason uh, that we listen, but we don't listen either. We don't know the person we're talking to, or we don't trust the person we're talking to, right? So, for example, uh, if, uh, if, if you and I just met, like we're in Target, uh, and, uh, and we're shopping for, I don't know, groceries or a shirt, whatever it is that you shop for in Target, uh, and, and we run into each other, we start talking, you start giving me marital advice, marital advice, I'm, I'm probably going to listen to you, right? I'm going to be polite, but I'm not listening to you. Why, why am I not listening to you? It's not because you don't know what you're talking about. It's because I don't know you, right? I'll give you my email. I'll tell you, hey, you go and experiment with that. You email me. Let me know how it works, and then I'll decide if I want to take your advice or not because I don't know you or I don't trust you, right? So this is like 60% of my family, right? Everybody's got shady people in their family. I do too. Right? And so this, this is family I know, I just know them too well. And so because I know them too well, I'm not about to listen to what they have to say. I will not be taking, I'm not going to name names. I was about to give names, they might podcast and listen to this, and I, I'm not going to do it. This is what happened to Israel. Israel drifted to a place, they, they drifted to a place where their heart had fallen so far away that they would say, man, I don't know God, or I don't trust God. And they did this because their story changed. Their story changed. The narrative of Israel changed. See, when, when they were rebuilding the temple, when they were sent from Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, their narrative, they thought, was clear. And their narrative, their story was, God is for me. God is for me. But now, uh, time has passed. Uh, we, we've begun to drift. We've begun to drift because we had this grand vision of what life would be like. Right? And in fairness to Israel, there were a couple of prophets who came in and they preached to them and they painted this grand picture of what life would be like and they haven't seen it. It hasn't come to pass. It hasn't happened yet. And because it hasn't happened yet, that left them with unmet expectations. And here's what happened. The story shifted. Israel's story shifted from God is for me to God is against me. And when their story became God is against me, their heart began to drift. See, every human story, everyone, has one of two baseline narratives. Either God is for me or God is against me. Every human narrative has one of two baseline narratives, two baseline stories. God is for me or God is against me. And determining which one is yours will determine 
how you live your life. This is why the story you believe matters. The story you believe matters. See, if, if your narrative, if your story is God is for me, if your story is God is for me, then he, here's the thing. Because God is for me, you're going to be more than willing to trust your heart to God. You're going to be more than willing to say, God, here I am. Take me as I am. Change me as I am. You're going to be more than willing to say, this is who I really am before the Lord. Because you trust. Because He is for you. And if you think God is for you and you're willing to trust your heart to God, you'll be willing to open yourself up to community. You'll be willing to open yourself up to the voices of men and women around you. You'll be willing to trust people because you trust God. But if your narrative, if your story is God is against me, if it's God is against me, you will never, you have no reason to trust God. You you have no reason not to fear the opinions of people. If your narrative, your story is God is against me, you have zero, and it's completely understandable. It is completely understandable that you would never trust people. Why should you? You can't even trust the creator of those people. If your narrative is God is against me, you're going to hide in plain sight. You don't trust people because you don't trust God. You might be known by them, but you're only going to be known partially by them. Because you're only known partially by the Lord. See, I, I, think, I think it's hard to be honest about this kind of stuff. And I mean hard with ourselves, not, not just hard with one another. But if your life, if your life is marked by isolation, I think that if you got underneath what's underneath the isolation and got underneath what's underneath the isolation, if you got underneath that, eventually you're going to lead yourself to a place where you have to be honest and say, uh, I don't trust people because I don't trust God because I don't know that God is for me. I look at my life. I look at my life, right? I'm single. I'm unemployed. My family is falling apart. I've got that 60% crazy family too. I look at the circumstances of my life and I had this great grand vision for what my life was going to be like. Like when I was 13, I had this amazing vision of what my life was going to be like. And now I'm 25, 35, 45, 65, and it hasn't come to pass. And I don't know that I can trust the God that is sovereign over my life. I don't know. I don't know that I can trust this. Right? I have unmet expectations too. I am Israel. And so I don't know if I can trust him. And if I can't trust him, I'm certainly not trusting people around me. And if that's your story, if that's your narrative, it's going to lead you where it led Israel. Back to verse 2. Then I will send, this is weighty stuff, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Okay, let me explain this because it's hyper-confusing. There are two places in the Old Testament where, where, where there are lists of blessings and curses. And it's if you obey, blessing. And if you disobey, cursing. And here's what Malachi is saying. Your heart has drifted so far that even your obedience is cursed. Even 
Israel, your obedience is cursed. And here, here's why Malachi would say this. Because this is what Malachi knows. Malachi knows that from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God is not after a people of religious activity. He is after the hearts of a people. He is after your heart. He is not after your activity. So I think one of the misconceptions that, that many of us have about Christianity in particular uh, is that is that God accepts me or doesn't accept me based on what I do or what I don't do. And that's not at all the story of the Scriptures. The story in the Scriptures has nothing to do uh, with how we live our life or don't live our life being the barrier or barometer for whether or not God will accept us or not. But when you believe this, when you believe that like, if I go to church, if I pray, if I'm a good person, if I don't steal, like then God will be happy with me uh, and he'll accept me. When, when this is what you believe, he, here's what's going to happen. Everything you have in life has become something you've earned. And if your job, if your job, speaking to this educated group of men and women in here, if your job is something that you've earned, then it's now something God can't take away. And if marriage is something you deserve, then it better not be something he withholds from me. And here's what's going to happen. You see, if you, if you see God is happy with me, God accepts me based on what I do, what I don't do, how I live my life, how I don't live my life, then whether you have a job or a spouse is going to wind up being the litmus test for God is for me or God is against me. If I have a job and I have a spouse, God is for me. If I don't have a job and I don't have a spouse, clearly God is against me. You've just put all the weight of your acceptance on you. This is what happened to Israel. They thought God was withholding something from them. This grand vision of the future. They thought this is something that God is withholding from me. And because God is withholding this from me, my story has changed. From God is for me to God is against me. And it led them to verse 3. Verse 3, Behold, I will rebuke your offering and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall, and you shall be taken away with it. We're going to skip verse 3. Let's keep reading. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was on his lips, on his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you, Israel, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you a despised and abased people before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. So here's, here's where it led. 
when Israel's story changed from God is for me to God is against me, when their heart drifted down that road, it led it to covenantal unfaithfulness. So let me explain the word covenant. I know one of the arguments against Christianity uh, is that it's kind of archaic, right? It feels repressive at times. And you, you want an example? You guys use the word covenant, all right? And so can't you come up with a better, more modern term? No, no, we, we really can't. And here's why. Modern, uh, especially modern English, has no uh, parallel translation for what a covenant is. A covenant is this really unique relationship where there is this absolutely perfect blend of law and love. This perfect blend of law and love where the relationship is actually enhanced because of both of them. And when you see it in the Scriptures, you're you're always going to see my covenant with my people. Right? And so if we could use marriage as an illustration for covenant. My my wife, who was sitting with me, but was not because she doesn't like to sit alone. I don't know where she's sitting now. She's in the room somewhere. Uh, My my wife, uh, Amanda, that's my wife. Right? Like, Like she's not a wife to me. Like, she is a wife, but not to me. Like, like to me, that girl's my wife. It's this perfect law. But now, there's also stipulations. Perfect love, I mean. Now, now law, there's also stipulations on the relationship, right? So, a stipulation is that I am never again to give my heart or my body to another woman. Right? If I, if I do, I'm breaking the covenant and I'm deteriorating the relationship. There is perfect love, perfect law. My wife, who I will never give my heart or body to someone else. Perfect law, perfect love blended together. And the reason uh, that covenant is so important is to understand that, that when it says Israel turned aside, they were turning from and rejecting both the love and the law of God. They, they were saying, I, I don't know that I can trust you and I'm certainly not going to obey you. This is what happened when they turned aside. And, and covenant is central to the Bible because it, it is, if you look back at the, the text that was in there, in verse 5 it said, uh, my covenant with him was of life and peace. And then it said, fear and awe. This is, this is worship language right here. And what's he describing? Like what, what is this covenant describing? It's describing human flourishing. Absolute human flourishing. That the covenant of God is God's means of seeing humanity flourish. See, where perfect love, perfect law come together, humanity flourishes. And, and human flourishing is something we're all after. Every one of us, right? So last week, um, last week we voted on the hero ordinance. And I'm not about to make a political statement, but I am going to say this. People who are for the hero ordinance, what do they want? They want human flourishing. People who are against the hero ordinance, what do they want? They want human flourishing. We, we all have a vision of human flourishing. The question is, how do we achieve that vision and covenant is central to it, where love and law come together. But Israel's heart drifted. Israel's heart drifted from both love and law. It ran from this. It ran from this. And whenever your heart drifts from perfect love, perfect law, what God gives us, it, here's what's going to happen every single time, both on a macro scale and in your own life. You're going to redefine what human flourishing is. And you're going to come up with your own definition of what human flourishing is. And Malachi is going to give us two examples. Verse 10, both related to marriage. <clears throat> Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? 
Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord. So here's, here's Malachi's first example. First example of what happens when you start redefining human flourishing. The first example is why we marry. Now, I know it looks like it's who we marry, the daughter of a foreign god, but that's not the real issue. The real issue wasn't who they were marrying, but more why they were marrying the daughter of a foreign god. And so let me explain. Remember Israel's story. So Israel's story that had gone from God is for me to now God is against me. And now that Israel is believing God is against me, they start searching for other gods who will be for me. And so when it says they married the daughter of a foreign God, it's because, listen, they've got this grand vision of the life of Israel, this, this vision of human flourishing, what their life is going to look like, and there's a gap between what they see and what's actually happening, what they want to see and what's actually happening, and so they turn to another God so that God can fill the gap. And now, listen, none of us in this room, that might not be true, I, I don't know everybody in this room, so I don't think many of us in this room worship foreign gods. Like, we don't marry to worship a foreign god, but, but here's what we do. We do create other gods to fill the gap in our own lives. We, we go, I've got this vision of my life, what my life is going to look like, what I want my life to be like, this dream that I had for my life. And when my life's not filling it up, when it's not living up, I'm going to turn to something and make a god out of it to fill that gap. Now listen, what that is will depend on what your vision of your own flourishing is. What you make a God of will be determined by what it is that you want your life to look like. Right? So let me, uh, let me, let me do this for example. Because here's what's going to happen. Whatever it is that you turn to fill the gap in your own life, whatever that is, is going to become the authoritative God in your life. So, so if marriage, keeping in line with Malachi, if marriage is what you want most, and if your vision for the life that you had is, I just have to be married, then you will do whatever it takes to get marriage. And wisdom will get thrown out the door because marriage is now the new God of your life. How do you know? What's the evidence in your life? Well, maybe this. Will you listen to anybody else? Right? So, like, you start dating somebody, guy, girl. Uh, you're dating, and, uh, and, and then the community around you just says, man, I just don't know this is wise. I don't know this is a good move for you. Do you hear that and go, I ain't got time for you. My business, not your business. Will you listen to the community around you? Right? See, see, in any area of life, if your answer is no, it's a pretty good sign that you've made a God out of whatever it is they're trying to speak into. And substitute gods, 
false gods. They promise life and they always lead to death, which takes us to Malachi's second example, why we divorce. And the second thing you do, verse 13, you cover the Lord's altar with tears. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. We skip verse 3. We're going to skip verse 13 and keep reading. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So why were they divorcing? It says they were divorcing because they were faithless to one another. Now the scriptures give biblical reasons why divorce is okay. This is not one of them. This is them saying, man, my affection is just not what it used to be for you. I think we should divorce. This is, my, my heart has really drifted from you. Uh, in modern day language, we're just incompatible. And we're not faithful to one another anymore. And divorce is the result. And here's the, the thing. This is what I think, I think Malachi is trying to get to us right here. That if, if your vision of your life, of flourishing in your life, has no room for the perfect love of God or the perfect law of God, eventually you'll see divorce as a means of flourishing. Eventually you'll start to convince yourself my life would just be better if I wasn't married anymore. And it leads to the destruction of two things. One, the family. Two, yourself. The family. What did it say? What, what are we after? What did God want? Godly offspring. What, what does this mean? It means that God was after children raised up inside of a home where the perfect love and the perfect law of God will be put on display in a marriage. And then the second thing, the, the destruction of yourself. So what it means, putting on garments of violence, that you do violence to yourself. That this tearing of this, this covenant of marriage, it, it does violence to yourself. And I think, I think this is a tangent, but I want to say it. I, I want to I hit a tangent right now, and let me come back to the sermon in a minute. If you are divorced, if you have been divorced, if you come from a divorced family, you need to know that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. You, you need to know uh, that, that you don't walk around with a sign on yourself because of your life or your family's life. You need to know that God's grace conquers all, and we'll get to that in just a second. But there is no doubt and there is no disputing, no arguing, the violence done to yourself and your family through divorce. 
And where does it come from? It comes from a new vision of human flourishing. My life would be better if. And so let's do this. Let's do this. Let's, let's summarize Malachi 2 and see what Malachi said about the nation of Israel. Here, here's, what, here's what he said so far. Uh, your heart has drifted. Your heart has drifted. Uh, you, you have become unfaithful. You've become unfaithful and, and you've chased other gods that have led you down a road of destruction. So you, your heart has drifted. You've become unfaithful. You've chased other gods. You, you know who that sounds like? You know what it sounds like? That sounds like me. Like it sounds like me. It sounds like you. It sounds like everyone in this room. It sounds like every story of every life that I've ever heard. My heart drifted. I, uh, I, I was unfaithful. Uh, and I chased other gods. It sounds like every story of every life that I've ever heard. And so if that's true, if that's the case, if that's true of you as it is true of me, and I'm the ringleader in this, like I'm the ringleader of drifting heart, pleading, oh God, bring me back. Bring me back. Lord, I know my heart too well. I need you to draw me back. I am the ringleader of drifting heart in here. If that's true, True for me, and if it's true for you, what's the solution? What's the solution? Where do we go? Where do we turn? What's the solution? The solution is this. The solution is that we don't skip verse 3 or verse 13. Verse 3, I will rebuke your offering. Verse 13, you will cover the Lord's altar with tears. We don't skip verse 3. We don't skip verse 13. That Jesus, who was the perfect priest, Jesus, who was the perfect priest, priest became like an imperfect people and shed his own tears on the way to his own altar, Hebrews, where he would be the offering that was rejected, Galatians. So that, so that the offering and sacrifice of your life and mine could be accepted and our life, God is for me or God is against me, wouldn't be determined by what we do or what we don't do, it's been determined by what Christ did for us. So what's the solution? The solution is that that story, which is the central narrative of the Bible, and it is the narrative in the story of Malachi. The solution is that that story becomes your story. It becomes the governing story of your life. So that that governing story will determine the script that you live from. That governing story will determine the personal narrative that you live out. That's the solution. That's the hope. And when it does, when it does, here's what the cross says. Here's what this cross of Christ where perfect love, perfect law collide. It says no life has gone too far, no marriage is too broken. It says no past, no past is unredeemable. That's what it says. It says that the narrative of your life can be titled redemption. And so we've titled this series The Danger of Mission Drift. And, and, and here's, here's why at its core. The story of Israel needed to be rewritten. The story of Israel needed to be rewritten and in Christ it was and if Israel's story can be rewritten, your story can be rewritten. Our story can be re 
written. The story you believe matters. The story you believe matters. The story you believe matters. What that governing story is in and over, in and over your life matters. And so here's the... Here's what we need. Danger of mission drift. Bringing it home to sojourn. If we want God, if we want God to protect us from mission drift, here's what we don't need. We don't need God to protect our strategy. I love strategy. But I can draw on a whiteboard all day long. It is a blast. We don't need God to protect our strategy. We, we don't need God to protect our philosophy of ministry. I love our philosophy of ministry. I love how we pursue what we do at Sojourn. But we don't need God to protect our philosophy of ministry. What we need, what we need is God to protect our story. We, we need God to guard us and protect us from collectively drifting from God is for me to God is against me. And if you're in this room right now, if you're sitting here and you're, you're hearing these words and you know, and let's not pretend like this isn't a real reality for me. You can't say real reality, can you? Uh, this is not a reality for some of us in here. Let's don't pretend this is not a reality for some of us in here that we're sitting here and we're saying, man, I am more Israel than you know. All right, listen, I am more Israel Israel than you will ever imagine. My heart is drifted and drifting and drifted and drifting and drifted and drifting. Then here's a story you need to believe. In Christ, because of Christ, through Christ, God is for you, not against you. Let's pray.